Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Hey, good morning, Mercy family. Good morning. Hey, uh, right out of the gate, I want to say specifically a thank you to our Sunday morning ministry teams for a great Sunday last week. Um, Y'all, last week we had a record number of people here on Sunday morning than most have ever had. The house was full, uh, and you did so well to serve so many that came, especially for the first time, some of our guests. That's at both of our campuses, whether it's set up and tear down at Northeast, whether it's the parking lot that uh, is a little bit of a madhouse sometimes at Providence Road, um, whatever it is, kids' classrooms, worship, um, y'all made our church feel so welcoming and um, as your pastor, I'm so honored to serve with you. You have I told you last week you are a generous people and you are a servant people. And I love that. And yes, we're actively discussing uh, how to make more room around here. So keep uh, praying for us. I wanted to acknowledge two of those people that serve um, all the time here at our Providence Road campus. They're two of our deacons. Their names are John and Margaret Adams. And I'm going to ask them to come up with me real quick. Uh, these are two of our deacons here at Mercy Church, um, and I've asked them to come up here because, this is why you don't tell pastors things, um, this week they are celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. Isn't that awesome? Life goals, life goals for sure. So I wanted to take a second and pray for you guys, thank the Lord for you. Um, and then we'll get on with it. Come over here. Stop hiding over on the side. Can't do it. Can't do it. Love you guys so much. All right, let's all pray together. Lord, thank you for the grace you have shown on the Adams family. Thank you so much uh, for the blessing they are to the Mercy family. We are so grateful. And so we, um, we pray for so many more years ahead, and we are thankful for what you've given them. We love you. We praise you for our brother and sister. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love you guys. Yeah. told me one of the keys to their marital success is keeping John out in the yard a lot, doing yard work. Um, that was awesome. I also want to say, um, want to make sure to say to all of us, happy Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. Uh, you know, I find it um, as a, a pastor and really a missionary, as one of God's people, God always places his people to be his representatives in a certain time and place. So here we are as God's representatives in 21st century America, and as the church should, as good missionaries should, we look back at history to help understand our present reality, and y'all, this holiday is a unique one. It's powerful. It's very personal to me because it commemorates a pastor, right? He's such a, uh, a big figure in history that we can forget he was just a, a frail and flawed man as well, just like me, a, a courageous man, though trying to lead God's people to stand up for God's way in a broken world. And Dr. King's a hero of mine. 
He held a biblical worldview that spurred him to lead a movement that would push for equality of dignity to be shown to all God's image bearers here in this country. For the kingdom of God to come just a little bit more on earth as it is in heaven. And so each year what I do to commemorate this is I read his letter from a Birmingham jail, a letter he wrote to fellow pastors. So I read it as a recipient because those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. And in that letter, I read powerful themes of scripture that he brought to bear on the unjust laws of segregation that were oppressing people of color at the time. And I read themes like justice delayed is justice denied. An unjust law is a human law not rooted in God's eternal and natural laws. His model for civil disobedience was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His inspiration for courageous love was the cross of Christ. And then there I see a plea to a bond that should be deeper than race brotherhood under the blood of Christ. I see a black brother in prison calling his white brothers from a place of pain and disappointment and yet hope that one day their children will sit around a table together. And I look at our day. I look at, we're in Charlotte, a city with no true ethnic majority, 48% white, 31% black, 13% Hispanic, and then other. Fastest growing ethnic group is South Asian people from all different ethnic groups and even different cultures within those ethnic groups. All who need Jesus and who God has put in our time and place. And he calls us to make disciples. Not disciples of just some people, disciples of all peoples, all people groups. So my prayer, one of our ministry values is that we pursue multicultural unity under the name of Jesus for the sake of all peoples. Because y'all, only Jesus creates a people from all peoples, 1 Peter 2. Only Jesus breaks down the dividing wall of hostility between the races, Ephesians 2. This is not a social fad the church is hoping to get in on. It's our application of the gospel. So we major on the gospel around here. And we seek the kingdom of God to come here on earth as it is in heaven. And in heaven, oh man, it's the hope that we look forward to, right? This beautiful mosaic of peoples gathered around the throne together, voices in unison, pointing their praise to Jesus. And he's already given that unity to his church. He's won it for us. We have to receive it and walk in it. And we do that under the hope of the gospel. So I pray that our church continues to make strides in receiving the hope that he has won for us, the unity he has won for us through his blood. With that said, I want to turn our attention now to our text for today. So if you got your Bibles, open it up, make your way over to 1 Samuel. It's in the Old Testament. It's going to be right after the book of Ruth. So you got Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth and Samuel. And we're going to be in 1 Samuel. We're starting in chapter 2 today. We opened this book last week saying one of the things that's so great about 1 Samuel, about this narrative that we're going to read, is that it's telling us an account of how God worked out his plan through some people that didn't know what his plan was. And we're talking about how good that is that we have something here because we're trying to live our lives in God's world. And if we just knew a little bit more of what God wanted from us, remember, we're going from the presupposition that there is a God. He does have a plan. And if we could just get a little bit more of that, man, we feel like that would help us. But we don't know what his plan always is. We don't know what the future holds for us. So how do we live our lives? And that's what we're going to be looking at. Well, today we're going to be talking about how do we live our lives in God's world as a bunch of sinners, which we all are, right? And it's going to be a little bit of a different tone than last week, all right? Last week, we had this 
feel-good account of Hannah, this very inspirational man, the person we all want to be a little more like in Hannah. Well, this week is a dire warning to us about sin. So I thought at least I would give you a fun title for the sermon, all right? This is going to be maybe a little bit of a heavy thing. I don't always title sermons because I care more about what they're about than the title, but this is just too much fun, okay? So the title for our sermon today, 1 Samuel 2, 12 through 36, Gluttonous, Arrogant, Evil Priest, and the Impending Judgment of God, a case study in sin and how to pray against it. <laughs> right? That's so good that the Puritans are going to give me street cred, right? That's that, that long here. I'm pumped about it. Um, here's what we're going to do. Today, we're going to look at how sin works. And there, you know, look, there's always three things working against you in this world. There's sin, the sinful desires of your flesh. There's the world, the broken world around us. And there's the devil himself. And they're always at work. We're not going to tackle all of them today, but we'll talk about what the Bible calls the sin of the flesh. That means your propensity and your thoughts, desires, and actions to reject God and serve yourself. I'm going to walk you through this passage, this account of these gluttonous, arrogant, evil priests. And I'm going to show you the lies that sin tells you to convince you to follow it instead of God. Then I'm going to offer you a prayer to fight against those lies. These, this whole series, like I said, it's about living our lives in God's world. How do we live in God's world when we're so prone to reject him and go our own way? Well, we're all sinners. We're going to see sin at its worst today. So I'm going to show you what it is and show you how we fight back against it. The lie sin tells you, then the prayer to fight back. Okay, as I do that, I'm getting ready to open it up. I'm going to start in verse 12. There's something I do from time to time around here. It's a little bit just kind of fun and lighthearted, but it also represents, I usually ask Mercy Church a question. Are we ready? Are we ready to hear God's word? The reason I do that, again, it's a little bit fun, but also everything we're doing when we're gathering for worship is that we don't want to just come through and do some motions, but we assume God is going to change us as we sit under his word, as we sing truths about God's word together, then we get there and we expect God to change me, to move in me. We're expectant that his word, he's going to do that through his word. So when I ask you if you're ready, it's are you ready? Not just because of the next spot in the service, but are you ready to receive what God has for you in his word? Okay. So Mercy Church, both of our campuses, are you ready? Let's do this. All right. Verse 12, Eli's sons were wicked men. (laughs) So it's a little, little bit different. They did not respect the Lord or the priest's share of the sacrifices from the people. Okay, Eli was a priest. If you remember that from last week, his sons were also priests. They weren't the high priests like Eli, but they were of his house. So one of them was going to take this spot one day. If anyone in all of Shiloh, Shiloh is our setting. If anyone were to respect the Lord, it would be the priests, right? The wickedness of these two stated clearly right here in the first part of the opening sentence of our passage is ultimately, we're going to see in two weeks, going to cost many, many people their very lives. And it all started with a disrespect of the Lord himself. They knew of the Lord. They knew a ton about the Lord. Of course they did. They were a priest kid. They probably knew more about the Lord than just about anyone else in Shiloh. They knew Leviticus 7, 
that says every family who comes up every year, comes up to sacrifice an animal to atone for their sins. We saw that. That was Hannah's family, Hannah and Elkanah. They would come up every year to sacrifice. And they knew that when that family came up, what would then happen is that the family would sacrifice that animal. They would cook that animal to have a celebratory meal. And then the responsibility of that family was to hand over a portion of the meat to the priest. That's Leviticus 7. God had set it aside as specifically the breast and the right thigh of whatever animal that was to be given to the priest to eat because God's like, I got y'all trying to help people worship rightly. You ain't got time to herd cattle or whatever else they were doing. So we've got this reserved and set aside for you. Eli's sons knew that. Of course they knew that. They had eaten the meal. Right? For years, for years, Eli's come home and been like, all right, guys, guess what we got for dinner tonight? Got a breast and a thigh. Again, a little two-piece action again today, right? And you know who came? I don't know. Somebody came up. It was Jacob's family came up. It was a big meal this week or whatever. They knew all about it. They knew about the Lord, but they didn't respect the Lord. And listen to me. The distinction between knowing about God and bowing your knee in respect of who he is We're going to see that's everything. And this is the first lie sin tells you. At the end of the day, God is not in charge of you. That's the lie sin tells you. God's not in charge of you. Everything that happens comes from a mindset. Everything we're going to see unfold here comes from a mindset of disrespect towards God. And the form of that lie, it's a little bit different in the Bible Belt. There's a reason I worded it this way. If I told you... You should not disrespect God. Many of you would be like, that's right. But there's a form of lip service Christians can get in the habit of giving to God. Put him right up there on the mantle with great granddad's picture or whatever. We respect him. We tip our cap to him. You better not ever say anything bad about him. But when it comes down to my life, I'm in charge of me, not him. For many, God is an abstract deity not an authority actively engaged in my life who I submit my desires and actions to. I'm just going to do me, period, at the end of the day. And I'm telling you, this is the seed from which a whole lot of bad fruit grows. There's a fascinating way sin works that you can believe that God is real. You can believe he's the creator. You can believe he sits on the throne in heaven, but still you're in charge of you and you're going to do you. That is sin at work, corrupting your thoughts. They didn't respect the word of God. You see that? They knew it, but at the end of the day, they didn't care. Their desires were a greater source of authority in their lives than God's word. Their desires were a greater source of authority, of power, of influence in their lives than God's word. It sounds absurdly arrogant, and yet it's us all the time. I can hit the greatest hits. God says, don't be unequally yoked in marriage, and yet here you are dating a non-Christian. Who's in charge? God says the debtor is enslaved to the lender, and yet you are racking up debt to buy things you don't need to impress people you don't even like. Who's in charge? God says if a man looks at a woman lustfully, he has committed adultery, and here you are looking at porn every day. Who's in charge? I could go all day on that list. I'm telling you, sin's lies at the end of the day, you are in charge, not him. And y'all, I promise you, I'm not trying to beat you down and make you feel guilty. 
What I'm trying to do, like a doctor, is get down to the source of the infection sin has wrought in your soul. And it always hurts to root that out. So the first lie you got to see, sin dethrones God and enthrones you. Because you know better than God. But of course, here's the problem we've all experienced. (laughs) You're a terrible God. You're a terrible God, right? That's what sin doesn't want you to know. Sin's going to keep that hidden and then laugh at you when you self-destruct. Let's keep going. When anyone offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant, they wouldn't even come out and do it themselves. The priest's servant would come with a three-pronged meat fork while the meat was boiling. It's just, you're going to get this kind of gross scene. They send their lackey to do their work for them. There's this gross feel to everything about these guys. Even the giant meat fork is just filled with gluttonous disrespect. Look at what they did, or what he did, the servant. He would plunge it into the container, kettle, cauldron, or cooking pot. The priest would claim for himself whatever the meat fork brought up. This is the way they treated all the Israelites who came there to Shiloh. Even before the fat was burned, again, go back to Leviticus 7 for this, the priest's servant would come and say to the one who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast because he won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. If that person said to him, um, uh, it's not God's word, <laughs> the fat must be burned first, then you can take whatever you want for yourself, the servant would, would reply, no, I insist that you hand it over right now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. So the servant's sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord because the men treated the Lord's offering with contempt. This is the kind of disrespect you expect from like the enemies of the people of God, like the Philistines. And here it is in the very house of God. Shakespeare would say there is something rotten in the state of Shiloh. Or as my kids would say, there's a fungus among us, right? (laughs) They're treating the offering, God's very people, treating it with contempt, his servants, Meaning this treating with contempt, they felt it was beneath them, worthless. This is arrogance of the highest order. And then look at the progression. What started between them and the Lord, disrespect the Lord, ultimately spills out into gross abuse of power towards people. Because listen to me, sin starts in the heart. It never stays there. It never stays there. It always works its way out into your attitudes and actions, and other people are always affected by it. Here's the second lie. Sin will tell you, you deserve more, so go get it. You deserve more, so go get it. I want to promise you something right now. Sin's appetite is never satisfied, never. These gluttons use their position of spiritual authority to satisfy the appetites of their flesh. All right. I need to give you a little, I'm just going to call it a pastoral aside. If that's not spiritual abuse, I don't know what is. And there is a warning, I think, to church leaders appropriate here for sure. Because a lot of spiritual abuse in the church comes from believing this same lie. A church leader gets to feeling entitled. They deserve more than what God has given them. So they manipulate and deceive in order to try and get more of whatever it is that they want. Money, power, success, fame, whatever. Believe me, this week was very sobering. Um, humbling to write. The stories of spiritual abuse in the church in our day are not in short supply. 
And on another day, I'll tell you more of my story, how as a teenager, I watched a pastor abuse his place of authority to satisfy his lusts and how it ripped families apart and ripped the church my family was a part of apart. And if you've got church hurt like I did, I need to tell you two things. First, this church is not the perfect church. That church will not exist this side of heaven. And so we will disappoint you. If you're new, just give us some time. Okay, we will, because we're a bunch of sinners, leading sinners under the mercy of God. It's why we're so insistent on pointing you to the gospel all the time, of making Jesus the hero of this story here at Mercy Church. Secondly, what we'll see in this passage is that God is a God of justice. He will make all things right again. I promise you, he will. And I hope your season at Mercy, I don't know why the Lord has just written this story for our church, but for many, it's been a place of healing during their time at Mercy, and I hope it will be for you as well. With that said, sin lies like this, not just to church leaders, does so to you too. You deserve more than what God has given you, so go get it. Just a little more money, a little more success, a little more free time, me time. At its core, this is greed, it's entitlement. You deserve more, you're entitled to more. After all, look how hard you work. Look at what you've accomplished. After all, God helps those who help themselves, right? You ever heard that? Not sure what kind of self-help theology garbage can that was pulled out of. Surely didn't come from the Bible. God helps the helpless. God helps the weak. God helps those surrendered to him. God helps the powerless. Again, this might hurt, but I say it again in love. Not only do you not deserve more, you don't deserve what you have. It's all a gift, It's all a gift. It's all his, and in his abundant grace and kindness, he's given you what you have to steward it for his glory for your time here on earth. It's all a gift. So instead of snubbing your nose at all those gifts and desiring to go get more, maybe take inventory of what God has graciously given a messed up sinner like you and be thankful. Talk more about that later. Verse 18. Samuel, oh, thank goodness, got a little light coming through, a ray of light in this dark scene. Samuel served in the Lord's presence. This mere boy was dressed in the linen ephod. That's the clothing of the priests. Each year, his mother, remember Hannah? His mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife. May the Lord give you children by this woman in place of the one she has given to the Lord. Then they would go home. So good. The Lord paid attention to Hannah's need, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. I love this. The Lord offering this ray of light in this darkness of sin. Though only a boy, he's wearing the clothing of the priest already showing us God does have a successor plan for Eli. It's just not his sons. It's Samuel. Hannah and Elkanah go up every year just before. And what a mother's heart, right? Remembering her son. I wonder how much he's grown this year. You know, we got to make sure it fits just right. Man, such a good mom. Each year, Eli speaks a prayer of blessing over them. May the Lord give you children in place of the one you have given to the Lord. He does that. And what I want to say to you, I've got a whole like 
side sermon that I don't have time for today because there's so much to do, but I want you to know you cannot outgive God. All right? And that's not prosperity theology to say it. I need you to know that. That as you give everything you have back in service of the Lord, I promise you, he will meet you with overwhelming generosity back to you. This isn't sow a seed of $5, you get $50 back kind of garbage, okay? No, no, that's serving your idol and you're using God to get your idol. No, Hannah gave her son to the Lord and rejoiced in worship because she saw her greatest joy and treasure was the Lord. And then the Lord blessed her in response to that. And I'm telling you, you're not going to be able to outgive him. So trust him with everything you have. Verse 22. Verse 22. Now, Eli was very old. He heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel, how they were sleeping with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He said to them, why are you doing these things? I've heard about your evil actions from all these people. No, my sons, the news I hear the Lord's people spreading is not good. If one person sins against another, God can intercede for him. But if a person sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to their father since the Lord intended to kill them. By contrast, see the author's doing this very intentionally. By contrast, the boy Samuel grew in stature and favor with the Lord and with people. There's a contrast the author wants us to see. Boy wonder Samuel is growing in stature and favor with the Lord and with people. Though young, the people see that the Lord's hand is on him. He grows in favor. This is how Eli's sons should be described, but they're not. By the way, this is the reason why Luke 2.52 is written the way that it is. Our only passage about Jesus as a young boy, it concludes saying, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and the people. It's written that way because Samuel is very intentionally a foreshadowing of the Messiah who would one day come and deliver God's people forever. Samuel's foreshadowing Jesus. The sons, though, back here in our text, the sons are vile. In addition to everything else they're doing, they're sleeping with the women who are there to serve God. And these evil actions, Eli defines them as being done against God himself. It's not good. It's one thing to sin against a person, but against God He poses a very important question. Who can intercede for you in that case? Talk about that more in a minute. But they would not listen since the Lord intended to kill them. And maybe that that phrasing causes you some trouble. The reason they didn't listen to their father was that the Lord intended to kill them. Is God authoring their evil here? I don't think so. I think these two developed, as you read it here, developed a pattern of sin that required them to ignore opportunities for repentance daily, like based on where they were and what they were hearing. Every single day, they had the opportunity to repent. And every single day, they hardened their heart against it. Daily, they made a mockery of God's very means of repentance. They hardened their hearts against God, and now they're experiencing the fruit of that hardening. Someone can remain so firm in their rebellion that God will confirm them in it. Here's the lie, though, that I see sin telling here, the warning us, and I want to warn us about. Sins lie here. Only listen to godly counsel when it agrees with you. They reject their father's warning. They didn't listen. And when sin really has its grip on you, it'll tell you to do the same thing. The people that you used to say you would listen to, you don't listen to now. People trying to warn you about a path you're heading down, no, 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 no. They, They don't understand. If they understood the situation, 
they would think differently. And to that, I want to say, why would these people try to hurt you? Why, these are people that love you. So many of us would be spared so much pain if we would listen to godly rebuke. And some of you are like, yeah, it'd be great if I had some of that in my life. I don't even know if I have anybody like that in my life. All right. It's time for some of y'all to go underneath the surface of your friendships and get real with one another, okay? And be real friends. And I'm gonna give you the license to have that conversation this week. You need to go and get, well, I've said this before to you, Mercy Church, you need to go and get a sparring partner, all right? That is somebody that loves you enough to punch you in the face, okay? You know what I mean? Some of you guys, it's just going to be literal. You're just going to hit each other, and you're going to do it in love. Um, But to metaphorically punch you in the face with God's word, with the truth of God. And you extend that license and say, when you see it, hit me, all right? And I'm going to receive it. It's God's warning, and I've told you time and time again um, different stories that I've heard that people have been spared immense amount of pain thanks to brothers and sisters who will punch them in the face with God's word, and they have agreed that they will listen in response to it. You need it, guys. We all need it. I need it. Now, what happens next in our passage is the announcement of God's judgment on the house of Eli. Interestingly, a prophet comes in, Shouldn't need that, right? This is the priest, the one who goes to God on behalf of people and goes to people on behalf of God, and yet a prophet has to come in because God's got a word for Eli. God says to them, I chose you, Eli, I chose you. I chose your family way back coming out of Egypt. I chose you. Verse 29, I'm going to skip to verse 29. He says, why then, knowing that I chose you, knowing how I've provided for you, And remember, he's talking to Eli. Why then do all of you despise my sacrifices and offerings that I require at the place of worship? And here's Eli's sin. You have honored your sons more than me by making yourselves fat with the best part of all the offerings of my people Israel. The lie that Eli believed, in short, people are greater than God. And the fear of people is greater than the fear of God. Eli broke the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. What did Eli do? No, no, he put his sons above the Lord. And in his tolerance of their behavior and in his participation, Eli made himself fat just like his sons did. His, listen to me, conflict avoidant niceness created a tolerance for sin. Because it's going to stir up conflict if I say something. If I put my foot down, do I really want to fight that battle? I mean, who matters? Let me translate this to us a little bit. Who matters more? What God thinks or what our friends think? Whose approval matters more? What God thinks, God's approval or our friends. Eli's sin here, in many ways, it was his niceness. His niceness made him a great priest when people were living God's way. He was a great priest for Hannah. By the way, do you see the incredible parenting contrast God is putting on display in chapters one and two? Hannah surrenders her child to the Lord because as Job says in Job one, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. So blessed be the name of the Lord. Hannah says, my kids are yours and I'm yours. As for me and my house, Joshua 24, we're going to serve the Lord. Eli puts his kids above the Lord. 
And there was a longevity of what happens because of that decision, right? It's not like he taught them when they were little. He didn't teach them how to bully God's people and take advantage of women. He taught them they were more important than God and sin did the rest. Eli's niceness made him a comforting priest and a terrible father. And ultimately, it made him responsible for the sins of his sons. The applications of this are abundant, aren't they? It goes way beyond parenting, of course. But y'all, God never once calls you to niceness. He calls you to kindness. So listen, don't be nice to your kids. <laughs> I know some of you are like, it's the only thing I'm taking home from church today. Well, listen, <laughs> be kind to them which means lovingly rebuke their sin and lovingly cultivate their character. And more importantly, the kindest thing you can do for them in your actions is honor the Lord above them. In actions, not just in words. The worst thing you can do is honor the Lord in word only and create a home of hypocrisy that they learn to live and walk in. Well, the man of God goes on to condemn Eli's house forever. His line's going to suffer violent deaths. His two sons, he says, are going to die on the same day. We'll see that in two weeks. But still, even still, the Lord's plan is going to continue. Our chapter ends with a ray of hope, verse 35. Then I will raise up a faithful priest for myself. He'll do whatever is in my heart and mind. I will establish a lasting dynasty for him, and he will walk before my anointed one for all time. This is going to be fulfilled initially by Samuel, then by a priest named Zadok, and then find its completeness, its whole fulfillment in Jesus, God's anointed Messiah, who will be the great high priest who atones for our sin on our behalf. So now that we've seen sin's lies, let me give us a prayer to pray to combat these lies that sin is telling us all the time. And by the way, these aren't the only lies of sin. These are the ones I see here. Maybe the words of this prayer will be familiar to you, but my hope is it will strike afresh and deeper. It's the prayer Jesus gave his disciples to pray. Knowing sin, knowing the world, knowing the devil will come constantly at them. It's recorded in Matthew 6, starts in verse 9, and he says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Maybe your translation will read, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Sin says I'm in charge. But the Lord, the Lord's prayer says, you God, you be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, not my kingdom, not my name, your name, not my desires, your will. Hallowed, holy is your name, not mine. And in this prayer, I'm rejecting the lie that I'm in charge. I'm pushing back against that. In my work, in my home, in my church, in my social life, everything I got, it's all yours. Your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. You're the authority, not me. Verse 11, give us today our daily bread. Sin tells me I deserve more. I'm entitled to go get it. But I'm fighting that lie with the truth that you supply me all I need today. Just as you took care of your people in the wilderness, you take care of your people still. I'm choosing to believe you've given me everything I need 
for a joyful life. In Christ, I've got you. Surely that's enough. I recognize everything I already have. You have given me. Today, I'm going to work hard for your glory, but I'll do so remembering you're the giver. And I will find contentment and peace in what you've given me. I will be satisfied in Christ today. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Another word for debts is sins. Because sin incurs a debt against God. This is the prayer of confession. Lord, I'm a sinner. And by the way, I want to ask you to get specific with the Lord in that prayer. Maybe we're going to actually group up and pray this prayer in a little bit together. Maybe at home this week is when you get real specific. Can you confess your sins to God? When's the last time you've done that? Because look, I promise you've sinned. Okay? I've told you before, there are two kinds of people. There are sinners and liars. Right? We're all sinners. And confession is so important, friends. You don't repent of your sin. Confess it to God. and turn. Repentance just means turning from it. If you don't, you'll eventually, just like Hophni and Phinehas, you'll harden your hearts against the Lord. That's what sin does. You must confess your sin to God. You can't go forward with God while unconfessed, unrepentant sin is festering in your life. We're all sinners. The question is, will we be confessors? Will we be repenters? We're all sinners. 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin, we're just deceiving ourselves. We're just deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some of you have seen sin's lies today for what they are. And today, you know you need to confess and repent and receive the forgiveness of God. You need his blood to cleanse your soul, and that offer is ours today. It's the only thing we Christians stand on, not our own merit. We're all sinners. We've just received the mercy of God, and it's here for you. If you've never received the forgiveness of Christ, it's here for you today. It starts with confessing your sin. Maybe your next step will be a relational one, to confess your sin to the person you sinned against. Or maybe it'll be to forgive as you have been forgiven. Verse 13, do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now we see Jesus calling out the things against us. My sinful flesh is tempted. The enemy knows it. Satan himself using my sinful flesh against me. God, deliver me. Deliver me, God. Protect me from my sinful desires. Deliver me from the evil one. Not in my strength, but in yours. God, give me victory. Give me deliverance. Help. Give it to me over the sin that competes for the throne of my life. The Lord's Prayer is powerful. It's this powerful prayer available to us. Christ's very words given to us to combat the lies of the enemy. I told you this opening in this series, opening of 2023, we are going to be, I believe God is calling us to be a people of prayer, a people desperate for him, even when that means a people that go to him, confess our sin, repent, and seek his help. And so what I want to do is I want to help cultivate the practice of prayer in your own life. We come to church, we gather for encouragement, we encourage one another, we sit under God's word, we hope to be changed by it and discipled by it and then go out and follow him. Now, I want to help cultivate prayer in your life, so I'm going to actually uh, conclude our time, both at Northeast and here at Providence Road, conclude our sermon time in 
corporate prayer. We haven't done this in a bit, so here's how we're going to do it. We're going to group up into groups of two or three right here in the room. That's what we're going to do. Now, in a second, I'm going to get you to identify your prayer buddy by some form of eye contact or this sort of move right here, whatever works for you, okay? Um, Maybe it's the person you came with. Maybe it's your spouse. Um, Now, here's always the license here at Mercy Church, okay? If you're new, newer to church, and you're like, I don't want to pray with anybody that's really, uh, I can't do it yet. Not ready to go there yet. When I tell you to find your prayer buddy, you just look down at your feet real fast, okay? (laughs) Universal agreed upon sign, you're going to pray alone this week, all right? And that's fine. I'm more concerned that you're praying. I hope in time you will embrace being a part of the people of God and being prayed over and praying over others. But we're here to help you take your next step. Maybe your next step today is just praying, okay? And then I'm going to walk us through the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to pray it out loud over one another. And that's going to be how we conclude. And then our worship teams are going to lead us from there. In fact, I'm going to invite our worship teams, get in place as you need to get in place. And as they do that, all right, ready? I want you to identify your prayer buddy, turn. All right, we're praying together. Again, groups of two, three, totally up to you. If it's nobody, that's fine too. Yep, feel free to move the chairs, do what you gotta do. You have exactly seven seconds to complete this connection. Seven. Six, five, four, three, two, one. Great job, everybody. I'm really proud of us. A couple of rooms full of adults. We did it. Um, okay. We're going to start right there at the top of that prayer. In verse 9, we're still in Matthew. Verse 9, where it says, Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You'll see that passage on the screen. And what I want you to pray, this is kind of like you're praying off of that prayer. You're remembering the lie of sin that says, I'm in charge. You're saying, God, you're in charge, not me. And then you apply that to the places in your life. And you pray that over one another. You take a minute, you pray that, and then I'll lead us into the next prayer point. Okay? You pray. Verse 11 says, give us today our daily bread. As you keep praying, say, God, sin would tell me that I'm entitled to more. But no, what you give is more than I deserve. So God, I receive 
everything with joy and thankfulness. God, would I look to you and you only to supply what I need? You keep praying. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. God, I confess I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I believe if I confess you're faithful and just to forgive me. I believe Christ died for my sins. I believe he won my forgiveness. I receive it and I stand in it. Maybe she said, I stand in that forgiveness. Thank you, God. I confess my sin. I believe I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness and I receive it today. You keep praying. Finally, verse 13 says, do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. God, help me, a sinner. Walk in this world. It's your world. It's filled with sin. The devil wants my destruction. God, deliver me. Deliver me today. Deliver me today, Father. You pray.
Father, we are, we are humbled by the reality as the, the curtain on our world pulled back just a little bit and we see the reality of a cosmic battle being fought for us. We know sin lies to us and the enemy uses those lies. So God, we reject them today. We do so together as your people. We do so running to you as a child running to the arms of a good and loving father saying, protect us, deliver us. Without your deliverance, we are hopeless. Victory won, not in our own strength, but in yours and yours alone. That is our only hope. God, we are thankful. We're thankful though. You give us your word. I think of the, I know the part of the prayer that maybe some of y'all have even wondered about. Like, where is it? Because it was added later. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever and ever. Amen. It is, it is true. Yours is, Father. It is all yours, not ours. Your will be done, not ours. Your name get glory, not ours. Your provision, would it satisfy us? Your forgiveness, would that be enough for us? In your strength, would we confess? In your strength, would we repent? In your strength, would we forgive others? In your strength, would we walk as fallen sinners saved by the mercy of God in a broken world for your fame and your glory? Father, we love you. We give the remaining moments that we have in corporate worship to you. We give our afternoons to you. We give our very lives to you. Lead us, Father. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen.